This Week in Startups is brought to you by LinkedIn. More than the world's largest professional network, it's also a better way to find great talent. Go to linkedin.com slash twist and get a $50 credit toward your first job post. And Blinkist, the only app that takes thousands of best-selling nonfiction books and distills them down to their most impactful elements. Go to Blinkist.com slash twist to start your free seven-day trial. Please welcome Adam Nelson from Social Capital. Hey. Uh, thank you, Jackie. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, can everyone hear me okay? It's not a big room. Okay. Um, and questions as we go. And questions as we go, yeah. So uh, the, the easy answer is I don't love presenting. Um, I much prefer a conversation. So uh, I... I was told that um, I'm not quite cool enough to get a you know fireside chat, so uh, I had to put the slides together. That's what Jason told me last year. Um, so uh, so someday. But in the meantime, uh, please, as fireside chatty as we can make it, uh, would be great. Um, really, uh, I think what you'll find is that um, there are no hard and fast rules, no right answers uh, on fundraising in this environment. It's, it's much more art than science, and we'll dive into that. But um, hopefully, uh, I can kind of give you a sense of how investors view things. Um, my own little kind of view on, uh, and our firm's view on, on what we see in the market, which is obviously always changing. Um, and then be helpful just with kind of particular questions that are top of mind for you. Um, so uh, I guess um, one other thing to start is I'll just give an intro on myself, uh, which I was definitely going to forget to do otherwise. Um, so I'm uh, a partner at Social Capital. Um, Social Capital is a venture fund based down in Palo Alto. We primarily do um, Series A and Series B. Uh, we do some seed, although uh, very infrequently. <coughs> and uh, uh, we're about a $500 million uh, venture fund in the last fund. Uh, 1.3 billion under management on the venture side of things. Um, we uh, are a mission-driven company, so we are trying to. Our mission is to advance humanity by solving the world's hardest problems. Um, that means different things to different partners on the team, but I think internalized, uh, what we're all trying to do is really. Um, democratize access, use te technology to democratize access to uh, opportunity. Uh, for me, the way that really kind of resonates for me is by um, helping to uh, uh, kind of take big industries that historically have been underpenetrated by technology um, and help transform them uh, in a way that's going to uh, be uh, more equitable rather than le less equitable in the future. Um, so I've spent a bunch of time in fintech, a bunch of time in logistics and labor. Uh, so broadly speaking, I would call it kind of verticals and, uh, and marketplaces. Um, and uh, before coming over, I was actually just a, a SaaS operator. I worked at Dropbox, uh, helped build out the uh, uh, the Dropbox for Business product over there, uh, particularly on the on the go-to-market side through partners. Um, so I was there for four years, uh, and then uh, in a prior career was uh, an investor back in New York doing private equity, um, which is probably where some of these kind of old sleepy industries that I like spending time in uh, came from. So I think that's the the overview on me. We can hop into the the presentation. So, um, yeah, so the prompt uh, was um, kind of Series A, like who qualifies for a Series A? Um, and uh, the the easy answer is it's really tough to, to tell you. Uh, I see some of the most highly valued Series A's be done off of a, a pitch deck and a, a really solid team. I see companies with $5 million in ARR have trouble raising a Series A uh, and everything in between. And I think, um, you know, I, I think it really underscores um, how much of venture capital is, is really comes down to, um, you know, what is the team, what is the market, what is the product, what's the traction, uh, and then balancing all those things out with the investor that you're actually speaking to. Just like you were selling an enterprise product, it's really going to depend on what your buyer, what resonates with your buyer, what they're looking for, what they care about. Uh, as much as venture can seem like this kind of very homogenous ecosystem from the outside in, and there are certainly ways where uh, it is homogenous, I'd say there is a lot more diversity uh, uh, underneath in terms of what people care about, what they're looking to invest in, uh, and trying to understand that is also going to be an important aspect of the, the fundraising process. 
so uh, before I get started, I think like the the big thing that that I like to do, and and this was the biggest surprise for me coming into venture uh, as an operator, is um, how many businesses uh, we see a year. You know, we're, we're talking about thousands for for a given firm. You know, five thousand something companies get seed funded every year. Uh, so it's it you know it's a huge. Um, uh, space uh, for entrepreneurial activity. Um, but I think that uh, a lot of it um, is partially driven by this ecosystem we're in and a lot of the uh, kind of public, uh, very public, very famous great outcomes that you see. Um, lots of people kind of being you know, millionaires or billionaires overnight. Um, but I think the reality is that entrepreneurship actually has a lot of different facets. And venture is um, an accelerant that, that really applies to a very, very specific type of entrepreneurship. Um, and so you know, this is from the main bricks. It's the red pill and the blue pill. Um, and I think that Series A is that moment where there's no turning back. Right, uh, you're taking venture money, and you're kind of setting yourself up on a pathway to always be really pushing the limit, uh, always be doing things um, in parallel rather than serially, always be investing way ahead of uh, your own traction and your own product market fit, probably from uh, from a business growth perspective. Um, and that's what we're in the business of doing. So it's really great for huge markets where time is of the essence and where you want to be doing a lot of things at once. Um, but uh, that that comes with a bunch of uh, trade-offs that you have to consider, um, like trade-offs in, in the ownership that you'll have in the company and the control that you'll have in the company and, and um, the expectation setting that, uh, that will be around you in terms of the employees that you'll end up attracting. Um, and so I think this is my PSA for uh, if you look at the entire ecosystem, I'd say right now, anecdotally, um, venture is probably being over-allocated uh, as a portion of overall entrepreneurship. Um, and by far, my most successful friend uh, is the person who bootstrapped his own startup and sold it for a couple hundred million dollars. So, um, and that, you know, who can say whether that's right for you in the case of his business that was absolutely right for him um, and uh, and it's been a great outcome for him not only financially that's not really what matters but uh, he was able to build the company that he wanted to build um, on his uh, on his own terms and uh, and build a culture that really resonated with him and uh, and just at any point in time venture didn't seem like the right uh, pathway for him. So uh, that's my PSA. Um, as in the past, nobody will listen to me. Uh, but uh, I wanted to uh, just talk about this. So uh, actually, so um, I was being a little lazy where a lot of the, I kind of went through the deck and I was like, a lot of this still resonates um, uh, a year later. Uh, this is my one like brand new slide. Um, and uh, this is a chart that Peter Wagner from Wing put together. Peter is uh, one of the kind of uh, very, uh, original uh, kind of venture capitalists who are around. Um, he was very early at Excel, uh, was a big part of building out that team, uh, and uh, ended up leaving uh, to join to start Wing um, alongside Gaurav Garg, who uh, who was at Sequoia. And I think you know this is definitely firm marketing also. So take it with a grain of salt. Salt. I think they view uh, a lot of the big institutional Series A funds have gotten really very large, uh, and there's a real opportunity for other funds that are kind of pure play um, to come in at this kind of seed A level and, and be able to play. But I think the numbers really back this up. So what they did is they took a data set of the 21 kind of top tier Series A funds, and of Series A deals that got done, what they wanted to do was say, well, what's the average size of the deal? How much capital has been raised before that, um, and how old are these companies, how mature are these companies? And what they found is that if you look between 2010 and, and 2017, um, the average seed deal, which is this red line, looks, uh, or the average seed stage company, uh, looks a lot more like the average size of a Series A, uh, what it was seven years ago. Um, and so I think we're still in this moment of the definition of Series A is really changing, um, and what's kind of been created as an ecosystem of seed and now pre-seed underneath uh, is really taking a lot of the space that Series A once kind of occupied. And so as a result, I'd say we're seeing more and more mature companies come in. Uh, Two-thirds of companies at Series A are revenue generating versus 11% 
uh, back uh, in 2010, uh, the average time before you raise a Series A has gone from two years to three years. Um, and I mean, when you think about having raised 6.3 million of, of capital, that's a pretty sizable amount um, where investors are coming in. So um, part of that is being driven by fund size. Right, so uh, bigger funds, bigger checks, probably the same amount of bets. So people are willing to wait a little longer before they go and kind of make the bet in the space. Um, I think a lot of that is being uh, driven by the entrepreneurial ecosystem. Like I said, you know, thousands of companies being created every year. As a result, in any given space, you're seeing ten companies where two or three might have existed before. So you need a little more time to figure out. Um, you know what is going to emerge as the potential large player in that space, um, and uh, yeah, I mean those are kind of the big the big trends that would drive this. Um, and so as a result, it's just when you're thinking about Series A, um, what that means is probably really changed even from when I started two and a half years ago uh, on the venture side of things. Ah, yes, LinkedIn jobs. I love LinkedIn. I've been spending a ton of time on LinkedIn. I love the new feed, by the way, where you can share information and see what your friends are up to. But putting aside their amazing new feed uh, that's highly addictive, I want to talk today about hiring. We all know that hiring is hard. We have many open positions here, and it takes us months to find high-quality candidates. And you know that your business is only as strong as the people you have working for you, like Emmy Award-winning producer Jackie and Jason DeMond, who runs the incubator. We have all these great people here. Well, where are those great people? They're on LinkedIn. It's the world's largest professional network, and it's the best way to find great talent. All that talent is sitting there ready and waiting. Yes, 70% of the U.S. workforce is already on LinkedIn. And if you're hearing my voice, you have a LinkedIn page. I know you do. And that means you also know that you're going to find quality candidates on LinkedIn. Businesses rate LinkedIn jobs 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates. And you know why this is. It's because it's the world's largest professional network. So just ask the hundreds of thousands, yes, hundreds of thousands of businesses that have posted to LinkedIn jobs over the past year. 22 million professionals, and this is the amazing number, view and apply to jobs on LinkedIn every week. I'm not saying 22 million people log on to LinkedIn every week. That would be an amazing number in and of itself. No, 22 million people look at the jobs and apply to the jobs on LinkedIn every week. And that's in every industry. So if you're not using LinkedIn for your hiring needs, you are missing out. Here's your call to action, and this is a good one. I want you to go to linkedin.com slash twist, linkedin.com slash T-W-I-S-T. When you go there, you're gonna get a $50 credit towards your first job posting. Think about that, 50 bucks is sitting there waiting for you. So I want you to pull over, I want you to get in front of your computer, I want you to get offline at Blue Bottle or wherever you're having your espresso, and go to linkedin.com slash twist, linkedin.com slash twist and get that $50 credit. Terms and conditions apply, of course, like any of these things. And uh, I can tell you, we've had an incredible, incredible run finding highly talented people on LinkedIn and using LinkedIn jobs. So get that 50 bucks and give it a shot. Let me know how it goes for you. LinkedIn.com slash twist. Hey, and go follow me. Add me as a contact on LinkedIn. You can find me, Jason Calcanis. I'm right there. And you'll see how often I'm on there. I'm posting clips from the show. I'm asking questions. LinkedIn is just on fire. Uh, so go ahead and go to linkedin.com slash twist for your $50 credit today. All right, let's get back, back to this amazing episode. I think this is this is um, pretty, I, I just want an excuse to put Billy Madison up there. Uh, uh, I think that um, just, uh, and we kind of touched on this, just uh, there is a whole set of considerations that uh, investors are are going to have, and I think understanding that uh, both on the investor level and then separately on the kind of ecosystem level is really important. So, what is the motivation? Who am I selling to? What do they care about? Um, what are the kind of key um, uh, decision points and key uh, and key terms that I should understand? And the good news is that this has like gotten so. Uh, democratized from a knowledge perspective that, you know, three hours of Google plus all of the great stuff that Launch does, you're going to be really well set up. But, um, you know, I, I'd say know this stuff beforehand. Um, don't pre-negotiate it in your first pitch meeting, but just know in the back of your mind what some of these things are, the, the idea that you're probably going to give a board seat up in the round. 
the difference between a safe node and a priced round, uh, and just have some sense of what you're comfortable with and what you're not comfortable with. Uh, and, and also, I think, ask for a lot of advice before starting the process, just with people who've been through this before. Oh, and, and here's the other one. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm glad. I'm, I'm also, like, so many companies come in and don't have a clear sense of, like, what the ask of the, the cash is for. So there's, there's one kind of, um, one way of doing kind of Series A fundraise, which is just back into the valuation that you want, understand that the Series A fund wants 20%, and then basically say, well, this is kind of the range at which I want to raise. Sorry, oh man, I screwed that up. Um, and there is math that says that, and that's actually how pricing gets done to some extent, you know, uh, in, in a lot of cases. Um, uh, obviously, there's within the wiggle room is where all the kind of negotiation happens. Uh, you know, 20% or 25% of your business, what the post money is, can actually have a huge impact on on the pre money. But um, but you know, I'm always surprised at how few people have gone and done the model and said like, what do I actually need to spend this cash on? And then let that determine what the round side is going to be. And then if you are in a competitive situation, people will say raise more. Uh, and we'll give you a better valuation because we want to put more in. Target VCs like customers. It's like very, you know, try to. I think there's something to be said for in the world where, you know, so there are kind of, I would think about two paradigms of a, of a raise process, and most exist, you know, in between this, but there's the you're hustling and trying to get pay, people to pay attention to you, and then there's everybody is trying to get you to pay attention to them. Um, and there are some, you know, sometimes there's no rhyme or reason to why this happens, sometimes there's a, a real reason for this. Um, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have a very successful Series A round if you have a bunch of people knocking down your door. It just means they want to learn more about what you're doing. So it may be that you're in an interesting market or something like that. Um, but if you're not thoughtful about kind of doing your uh, targeting and your positioning beforehand, um, you're either A, going to have a tough time going out and getting good conversion on your outbound outreach, or B, which is also really shitty, is you're going to have all these people coming to talk talk to you and they're going to just waste your time and your time is the most valuable asset that you have in building your business um, and so uh, I'd say even in the case where things are going amazingly well be thoughtful about who you want to talk to and why um, so uh, firms and partners in advance the other thing is uh, you know Building relationships over time uh, is, I think, much better than building, doing something transactional at the point of the raise. Uh, so again, you know, whether it's kind of talking to folks who are down funnel uh, from you, uh, so that you can kind of understand, they can understand what you're doing. Folks who are kind of investing in the space generally, I think, kind of doing the hey, compare notes and let me tell you about what I'm doing, and then uh, as things get closer and closer, let me share metrics, let me tell you about how things are going, and let me tell you about my vision for this round in the future, I think is a, is a really good way for this not to be like a two-week sprint where you're making a 10-year decision uh, to work with someone and give them a lot of control in your business uh, when you met them two weeks ago. I, I think, you know, uh, we're going to look at team, so I think uh, it, it was important to just kind of have a slide on this. Um, the reality is that I think uh, generally investors are going to look at teams very differently. Um, so some are going to be really focused on pedigree and only want to invest in, you know, Stanford CS students and some, and by the way, that's a really great way of having a really tight-knit network that can refer you new deals because you as a seed investor, for instance, say, like, I only invest in people coming out of program X or program Y, right? Or I only want to invest in people who come out of Dropbox or something like that. Um, so, and then there are some people who don't care about pedigree at all and just kind of there's this, you know, drive and hustle that they see and, and they really like that. And, and then there's everything in between. So this is the real art side of art and science, but... Um, 
you know, I, I would say one of the things, uh, one of the things that uh, gets talked about a lot, and I think there's a lot of merit to it, is uh, why is the founder starting this business? Like, why, you know, why is this a problem that resonates with you? Um, certainly, there's a reason why you're spending all of your time and have made a crazy investment of your time and opportunity cost and potentially your own actual money in this. So, you know, uh, why, why, what, what resonates with you? Help us understand that. Are you the right person to solve this problem? Because there are going to be a dozen other companies that are doing this also. Um, you're, you're, I think I always love uh, this is the software stuff, but a really nuanced understanding of the problem space that you're trying to attack. What you know, what's out there. We'll talk a little bit more on this in market, but you know, your ability to kind of frame things, I think, is is really um, a compelling differentiator uh, versus like a very salesy like here's my revenue. Here's you know my sales efficiency or, or what have you. Um, uh, your experience in leveling in the first couple of hires. So if you have a seven-person team and four VPs, and you know people haven't come from a, a you know a, a real great pedigree, that tells me that maybe you have trouble recruiting really great people and asking them to you know come in without a title, which is going to be a core. Uh, you know, a, a, a core competency for you as a CEO. Um, and so I think if you look at the composition of, you can actually tell a lot when you look at the composition of the team um, and what levels people have come in at and what roles they're in. Um, and then, you know, we're also going to go and do references on everyone on the team. So, um, you know, if you hire all stars, that's going to really. Uh, really kind of tell a, a very different story than, um, you know, trying to struggle to fill holes, uh, which really does come across in the, in the diligence. Um, and on the references point, I would also just say, like, I, I, I think you can learn a lot uh, about people's character in a bunch of different ways, and character is a big part of this. And so, um, you know, just be thoughtful, particularly as you're in this ecosystem, because uh, the connections that we're going to ping are going to disproportionately be um, uh, kind of congregated in this geographical space and certainly this industry space. Um, you know, just be thoughtful about uh, how you're presenting yourself and, and, you know, are you doing people favors? Are you being thoughtful? Are you being helpful? Um, this is really an ecosystem that kind of thrives on uh, a lot of um, really kind of core, like near-term uh, near altruistic, long-term payback type um, uh, engagements. And so I think, um, you know, now is as good a time as any to start doing that, even though your time is really scarce. Um, that comes through uh, when, when uh, you know, I'm, I'm pro probably have four LinkedIn connections with you. Uh, I'll ask them all. And one of them might just be somebody who uh, wanted to learn about your industry and thought you were really thoughtful and, uh, and then got introduced to a customer of yours who is now one of their customers. But they can tell me that, like, that customer thinks you're amazing. Like, that is such a great outcome. So, Mighty Ducks. Thank you. My uh, my early '90s, uh, late '80s movie game is is really strong, uh, and and increasingly less relevant as the cohort uh, gets uh, further away. Did you know that 88% of financially successful people read at least 30 minutes a day? Warren Buffett and Bill Gates credit their success directly to reading. The problem is, we all are super busy and there's not a lot of time to read. Well, Blinkist is the only app that takes thousands of best-selling nonfiction books and distills them down to their most impactful elements. You can read or listen to them in under 15 minutes, all on your phone. I have been using the service for over six months and five million people are joining me using Blinkist to expand their minds. Just 15 minutes at a time. I like to listen to Blinkist when I'm driving to the office or working out. And here is my personal recommendation. Go check out Learned Optimism, How to Change Your Mind and Your Life by Marty Seligman. And it's right here in Blinkist. And what's great is you can listen to it or you can read it. I have already read that book. But I like to do a little refresher. And Blinkist is great. To do that, I also was listening to Dan Harris's 10% Happier and the 7 Habits of Highly Effective People because 
I hadn't read one or two of those books and I decided, let me start with a little overview of it and then I'll listen to the book. So there's a lot of different ways to use it, but the Blinkist library is massive. You can check out top titles like Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss, The Snowball, Warren Buffett, and The Business of Life, The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F, that book you see everywhere, you can get a quick overview of it. Uh, what They Don't Teach You at Harvard Business School. That's another great book that is on the in the Blinkist library. So here's your call to action. And this is a limited time. Blinkist has a very special offer. Go to Blinkist.com slash twist and start a free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash twist. And you can start a seven-day free trial. It's a really, really great way um, to get key insights. So I have uh, really enjoyed it and Blinkist is a great product. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. So uh, thinking about the market, so again, I think there's like, for me, this is my own personal uh, kind of bias, but I love people who bring the nuance in of understanding the market, particularly because um, we're in, I, I'm in, a, uh, I tend to focus on areas where the market can be quoted in hundreds of billions in some cases, uh, and that's generally a pretty poor understanding of what you're trying to attack as your first entry point. Um, and so I really love, um, one is, uh, you know, we, t we talk about TAM, you know, what's your total addressable market. Um, and I think, you know, really being thoughtful about that a piece addressable is is really tough, um, and some people do bottoms up, some people do tops down. But I, I think it tells me a lot about uh, kind of how the founder thinks and the touch of feel they have for the market uh, and how they describe it. Um, and it doesn't need to be you know a forty slide uh, kind of PhD thesis, but um, just kind of talk through it, uh, and and you kind of get a sense very quickly of who really understands what they're doing and, and who doesn't. Um, and uh, particularly if you're in a space where uh, it resonates with you as a founder, but you don't have the experience in that space uh, already, uh, it'll show how quickly you learn because we're ultimately making decisions uh, both on uh, you as a, as a leader, uh, you as an operator, um, you as a, a salesperson, um, and all these other d uh, dynamics kind of projected out 10 years or five years and how your learning curve will change. And so that's a really good way to see what the delta is over time. Um, if you're being nuanced, uh, you probably won't have a market slide like this, uh, but 50% of market slides I see are these completely like, uh, we are in our own area, which is just completely subjectively better than anybody else. And nobody, you know, like, why would anybody else? And, and by the way, they're always like, 300 billion of market cap right here. And then it's like, but here's us. And you know, we want to raise a seed round. Um, so I, I would say like the, the being, being thoughtful, uh, this is the, the two by two is just an easy way for you to be like, hey, am I being kind of intellectually honest about where we fit in the space? And hopefully you do have something differentiated. You spend all the time building something different, but it's differentiated on different vectors than like better, faster, ch cheaper, um, because in most cases, unless you're having wild product market fit, the market isn't telling you that they view you like this. Um, so there were there were questions about like w Series A, w you know, benchmarks, and you know, what are you? Uh, I'd say the answer is it varies. Really, it, it varies um, even for SaaS, uh, which is where I spend my time, and, and B2B, which is relatively uh, understood and, and a pretty kind of competitive market, and things get priced pretty um, pretty tightly. Uh, so again, there's an entire uh, 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 canon of this stuff if, if you Google around um, a bunch of other venture firms, a bunch of other accelerators. Uh, look up SaaS metrics at Series A, and like part of it is just helpful to know what you should be measuring. Um, but I would tell you just like, Generally, growth is going to be the, the early kind of first blush thing, which is like, how, how have you shown that you've been able to grow your rev revenue base over time? Um, and, what's the, uh, and what's the trend line there? What's the, uh, is it accelerating? Is it decelerating? And, and what's that growth? Um, I would tell you like 10% I kind of look at as the baseline. It's like, you know, 10% uh, month on month growth uh, is, is, if you're not there, I think you, you may have a little 
trouble getting people's attention, particularly in some of these really competitive markets. Um, so that's something I would target, um, 15%, 20% being much better. Obviously, there's a big difference there because of compounding. Um, and I would tell you that uh, most Series A's uh, I see tend to, tend to get done somewhere in the um, 100K to 200K monthly recurring revenue range. Um, great teams in really interesting markets uh, get done um, potentially at lower numbers. Marketplaces on a net revenue basis sometimes get done on, on lower numbers because the GMV is higher, so you actually see more customers. But um, but that's just like a good rule of thumb. Uh, but it breaks a lot, so I wouldn't look at it as dogma or anything like that. But I figure it's helpful to share. Um, so I think the the big thing, and, and this is something we've written a lot about, so I don't even need to send you to Google. Just go to um, our, our Medium page at Social Capital. Um, uh, this is what I would say is like the, you know, kind of high level, do you qualify? I think really where the, the interesting stuff happens and the magic happens is going into the next level of what's driving the growth. Um, and so uh, there's one way of looking at that, which is just like the momentum of the business. This is the quick ratio, which uh, a couple of the partners at, at Social Capital came up with, which is um, identifying kind of your new revenue ads relative to uh, how much you're seeing churn and contraction. Um, now, what you won't see here is your actual retained revenue, which for a uh, recurring revenue business is going to be obviously the biggest part of your overall revenue. Um, but this will just show like how, you know, what's that trend line over time. Um, an even better view tends to be, um, I, I don't have a slide on it, but, you know, your cohorts. And so within a cohort, what's churn look like over time? Because depending on, um, uh, depending on uh, the kind of, uh, amount of new revenue you're building, bringing in, you be you may be growing so quickly that you're bringing in so much new revenue that ends up being really shitty revenue because it churns. That over time, uh, it's not really profitable, and you're going to see your growth hit a wall. Um, and so those are the things that we look at. And really, what you're trying to understand there is, uh, it's it's not that any of us are are looking to invest in one million dollar revenue businesses, but you're saying, is this business at enough scale where we can not even statistically significant, but like get enough sense for our early, early, early data to say that there is product market fit here and that it's a consistent enough product experience apart across all these customers that it applies to the broader market that they're attacking and we think there's an ability to 100x from, from where we are today. Uh, so uh, th this is called the the Magic Eight Ball. There's like a six blog post series uh, that we put out on this, and it's super in depth. And I would recommend everybody read it. Read it. Um, and I would say for consumer businesses uh, and and other businesses that are engagement based and don't monetize, obviously you can look at engagement as a core atomic unit of value, and then analyze how many users you have or how many impressions you have, and how that changes over month, every month. And I would also say that um, for B2B businesses, um, engagement is a really, really good leading indicator of your revenue. Um, so uh, if you're signing annual contracts, you have no churn, but you also don't have any engagement in your product, that's going to come through in our diligence. Um, and so I think the sooner that you go and kind of internalize those metrics, um, I think not even from a fundraising perspective, but just like, uh, it, are my customers getting value out of this? Uh, the, the easier that discussion is when you kind of get ready for series. I, I love seeing companies that don't even send a deck. I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend this, but like companies where we're having a conversation early on and I'm just seeing amplitude or something like that. It's like, we track all this stuff already. This is how we think of the data. This is how we run our business. And I'm just showing this to you so you can understand it. But we're thinking like investors ourselves. In B2C space, when you're talking about you know looking at these engagement metrics, do you weight revenue at a Series A versus engagement any differently? So I'm out of my depths a little bit on, on B2C, so I'll say that. Um, I just think know what you're selling, right? Like you're, you're basically selling your own differentiation on some vector, and I think saying it's revenue and engagement is going to be tough. Now, it could be it's engagement and a conversion rate that says we can monetize very well, um, but 
Uh, and so, you know, that that's great and that's a story people understand. Um, but I think, uh, you know, have a sense of what your North Star metric is and we could, we'll dive into that more later. We have about 10 minutes. So let's keep going. 10 minutes. All right. Um, so, you know, growth uh, in a vacuum doesn't really matter. It's is a profitable growth. Um, and so knowing your unit economics, I think, are really, really important. Um, I would tell you that a lot of times companies actually leave out big portions of their economics, uh, of their unit economics, which is uh, a concerning point. So these are just like easy, low-hanging fruit things to really be buttoned up when you're going and talking about your business to anybody, but certainly investors. Um, and you know, it's not things that people go around in the real real world saying like, you know, what's your contribution margin? What's your customer lifetime value? So it's not crazy to think that if you're not coming in with this lens that you wouldn't understand and and, and kind of internalize this. Um, but it's really important because basically what we're saying is there's the kind of R&D end of the business, right? You're gonna invest in product. There's GNA, which is just kind of keeping the lights on. But ultimately, a lot of the venture money is going to go into how effectively you acquire customers, what your cost is to serve those customers, and then what your return on that cost is because of revenue, right? So that might be putting ads on Facebook, it might be hiring salespeople, um, but having a clear understanding of this is going to be the big ask for, um, and, and this goes back to the model that we talked about on, on what your kind of projections are, um, is going to be really around like why do you think it's worth investing in this company now and doubling down and putting that accelerant on the fire. Um, and any questions on this? I think, again, these, in the interest of time, Googleable, but um, really, really important. And, and I'd, I'd urge you to kind of really understand the stuff. These are North Star metrics, so it's just um, you know a little bit of what we talked about, which is what matters for your business, and that might be different for every business. And I think having this be uh, further up funnel than revenue is uh, is important in a lot of cases. So um, in the case of Box, it was file actions. In the case of Dropbox, we were we were looking at um, at file actions also, as well as daily active users, because it was a product that we really wanted people engaged uh, with uh, as well. Um, and so, you know, you'll see revenue isn't anywhere on these slides, but I'd say like it's very hard to generate this sort of stuff without generating revenue, uh, unless your pricing model is broken or your go-to-market model is broken. So this is, is very core on the product engagement that drives outcomes. Um, <clears throat> uh, so last slide. Uh, you know, these are kind of the intangibles. The questions we'll ask uh, is is the attractiveness of the market and the market differentiation is like what what is really defensible about what you're doing? What's the moat that you're creating? Um, and uh, I think saying that's brand is really tough. Like brand is a tough moat to talk about a priori. Um, if you have uh, evidence of that, then sure, show it. But um, but I think you're going to want something a little more structural when you go and um, and ask. Execution is a moat that is an emote, you know. So uh, I would I would really kind of think about what structurally makes this advantage than success. So even if you beat everybody else, is there somebody who can come in behind you and cut the price and get venture funded that could then really threaten your business? Um, uh, customer momentum and, and scalable acquisition channels. So you know this goes back to unit economics. Is it's possible that you may find that you have some really good acquisition channel, like getting everybody in launch to go and sign up for your product. Um, that won't scale uh, if you have to get 100x. So I think the question is like, how? What are the what are the channels that you have available to you today? What do you think the saturation is and the saturation rate of those channels, whether it's kind of online or whether it's sales, etc. And and how do you think about your revenue composition over time? Those are really important questions to ask because again, we're thinking very far out rather than just how we exist today. But extrapolating out from today is really important. Um, is this a vitamin or a painkiller? 
scholar, this is like something that you will be asked. I actually saw a tweet just today where someone was like, um, someone should tell VCs that the vitamin market is twice as big as the painkiller market in the US, um, which I really liked. Uh, but it's going to be a question, which is like, is this a need or is it a nice to have, basically? Um, and for your buyers, that's going to be what we're going to ask in customer references. Uh, and we're going to ask it in ways like, hey, if these guys increase the price by 5x, would you churn 2x? If they come in at 5x, would you have still bought it? You know, and, and you're just testing how, how needed your product really is. Um, the scalability, is everybody receiving the same product? And is that product almost zero, zero marginal cost for you to to deliver. Obviously, marketplaces will have a higher mar marginal cost. Um, but I think if you're, for instance, a B2B company, but it, you run at a very low gross margin because you need people to go customize uh, the product, then that tells me, well, maybe this is less a product that we're actually investing in, but like a services build business based on top of it. Um, and so that's something that maybe I should just kind of call this um, annoying things VC say. Um, but <laughs> when they're when they're asking you questions about your business, but uh, that would that would definitely be one. Um, is this the right team? And then also, what's the capital efficiency, right? Do you need a billion dollars in order to build this company? Can you do it on a million? This kind of goes to the profitability question. Um, and uh, and I think, you know, it, if you could be profitable, then that says this is actually a really capital efficient business, and then it's just up to us in terms of how effectively we want to grow it based off of the scalability of the product and and uh, the scalability of the channels. Going back to what you mentioned on one of the first slides about mm, kind of customizing the pitch to the investor, uh, I had some questions on what sort of research can you do in advance to, to figure out that mix? And then also in meeting or in interaction, uh, any clarifying questions of kind of figuring it out on the fly? I thought that was a great point. Yeah, um, it's it's a great question. I, I tell you, I'm always amazed at the number of meetings. And this is also partially on me. And so now I've kind of taken the space to like at the beginning of a meeting, just walk through who I am, what social capital is, what type of companies we invest in, what gets us excited, um, because otherwise I get kind of too involved and I forget because I, I want to hear your story and, and learn about your company. But um, almost none of the companies that meet with me actually start with, hey, we'd love to just learn a little bit more about you before we um, dive in and, and can tailor the message. Um, and so part of that is, you know, uh, thoughtful, uh, you know, ultimately there's some aspect of us selling capital to you. There's some aspect of you selling the business to us. Um, that balance really depends on, you know, kind of the competitive dynamics in the round and how well the company's doing and all these other things. Um, but uh, some founders do some really good, whatever you would call like account-based marketing early on, where they're being thoughtful about who the right touch point is at the company uh, to go and talk to, really understanding the firm that they're working with, um, and have really kind of iterated through their pitch with, uh, with other um, kind of less good fits, if you will. Um, one thing I think is a really good pathway is, um, particularly if you think you're early for Series A, is to talk through the business with some investors that are going to be downstream of, uh, of where you are ultimately going to raise. So um, you may be really going out to seed uh, the kind of seed community or pre-seed, but having talking to a Series A or even talking to a later stage venture partner about like, hey, what you know, this is our business. What would you want to see at this stage? What is a compelling story today to be telling? And how does how do we kind of bridge that gap? Is a helpful conversation. So, um, and it's valuable to the investor because if they're interested in your space, they want to be able to kind of map over time how you're doing over time um, and kind of see how the story changes over time. Everybody's talking about the seed is the new series A. Nobody's saying exactly why, the structural reason that actually, um, why that this happened. Yeah, on the structural things, I think, you know, uh, and I haven't seen a, a scientific study of this, so uh, it's just kind of my, my opinion, but I think uh, you have bigger funds, um, so that's part of it. So people who are saying, I can actually afford to wait a little bit uh, and 
for my pitch. Um, and if I'm targeting, and they kind of think about it in an ownership pers uh, percentage perspective. So um, now, granted, ownership percentage for, for Series A has also come down over time, which isn't captured in that graph, which may have impact, uh, kind of impact returns over time, which is a whole different story. But if you just think about a Series A fund, like generally speaking, they're probably thinking, let me try to get 20 to 25% of this business in a Series A. It just means that if I'm waiting for longer and there's more capital coming in beneath me, then I'm going to have to come in at a higher valuation, higher pre-money. Um, but I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to spend $10 million for 25% uh, uh, instead of... Six million for twenty-five percent, uh, even though it's more capital coming in. My fund size has gone up by that same uh, amount, and so um, obviously that means that the exit valuation has to be higher, also. But uh, but I think that's a big piece, and one. And so, how much of that is firms just wanting to capture management fees, and how much of that is you know actually kind of the right investment philosophy for the market? Um, I think there are a lot of people who would say firms are just trying to capture management fees. I think um, you could also say that. The nature of this market is that there's so much more noise than there once was because there are so many more companies being created that you actually want to be waiting a little further downstream before you make a big institutional bet, set up a board, and do all of the things that um, that your um, that your fund is kind of uh, kind of uh, set up to do really well. Um, on the 18 month financials, when you present that, what's your opinion on seeing profitability on that? Uh, in terms of not being ambitious enough when you say that you might be profitable in two years? I, 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 think, um, I think it's just, to your point, it's, it's kind of, on one hand, I get why you wouldn't want to say we're going to be wildly unprofitable at this point and we're going to need 5x the capital. Uh, on the other hand, I, I think it is like, you know, when you think about the, the kind of investor who's coming in and saying we want this huge market, uh, we want to, um, you know, we want to get drive these kind of crazy outcomes that are, you know, infinitesimal uh, likelihoods. But if they hit, then they're huge. Um, you know, they want to see that you're really trying to go and and push out to a big outcome, which means investing behind it. So I would say it's a balance. Um, I don't think profitability is necessarily a good thing at 18 months out. Um, but I think you know it's perfectly fine if you say, well, our current plan has us profitable at this point. Obviously, if we were hitting this plan, we would have a, con a conversation you know, six months in, nine months in, that says, where do we want to invest knowing what we know? Um, but let's be responsible about how we get there. So I think you know, either, either is fine, um, as long as you're kind of thoughtful about um, the trade-offs. Because ultimately, if your unit economics are solid, then it's just how much capital you want to pour behind your unit economics from a growth perspective, and then how much capital you want to pour into R&D to make your product better, more sticky, what have you. So uh, Jason had a kind of an interesting idea where he's like, you know, keep uh, keep relationships warm by keeping um, VCs on your monthly updates um, so that they're kind of getting that, you know, pulse check with you. What how do you um, what kind of meetings have you seen go really well where it's just a it's a slow relationship build over time where you enjoy the meeting, you feel like you get a lot of value out of it, um, but there's not like an immediate ask. Like, what's that kind of art look like for the entrepreneur doing it well? Oh yeah, I think it's um, I think it's the right balance of uh, sharing and kind of telling you about what the business is, what the, asking questions and trying to get something out of the meeting for you, the entrepreneur. Um, I think that that is probably. 80% of the meetings that I have and 20% are more reactive where, um, and it means that I'm not doing my job if a company is raising in a space that I'm interested in and I don't know them already or haven't heard of them. So a lot more often uh, the case is that um, either I will go reach out to a company that I think is interesting much earlier on or they'll get introduced to me through my network or uh, hopefully that company reaches out to me uh, in a perfect world uh, because they're like, oh, Adam's so cool. I want to spend time with him, and um, and or and they ask to be introduced to me. And again, uh, at that point, 
always, 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 always go through a really good warm connection. So that that's two-sided. It means somebody who uh, you know really well and who uh, can speak to the business and not just like, I met this person at Starbucks. Um, and also somebody who knows me well enough where it's not weird that they were emailing me out of nowhere and they don't really have context on what I do. I love all the questions. Very, quick, very few slides. Very quick question: a cold emailing. How do you feel about that? Uh, I, I'm I'm a very hard no on it. Um, I think you just have to. Um, I, I mean, I think there are people who will respond to cold emails, um, and I, I think that's great. Um, but I think, again, on the VC side of things, that your time is the most scarce resource you have. Again, so. Um, uh, there is just such a negative signal and an ad adverse selection of somebody who, um, like, particularly you're here, you're in launch, you have Jason, you know, you have this kind of ecosystem around you. Um, you part of being here is about getting the access. Um, so to go and say, like, hey, I'm in this incubator, but I couldn't figure out any better way to get to you and your 3,000 connections on LinkedIn than sending you this cold email. And then for that cold email, I'd say then the really bad thing is if that cold email doesn't have any kind of um, context on it, on why you're reaching out. Um, if somebody writes a really thoughtful email about social capital and me specifically and why they want to talk to me, um, I will always answer that. And if it's kind of something interesting, then I'll potentially take the meeting. But I will always prioritize somebody who's found a better pathway in. If somebody is going through a warm uh, connection, what's the best way to do that? Is it sort of to, to maybe send a blurb about the growth and then a, um, a, a link to uh, like a prototype or something and just say, here, take a look at this. This thing is amazing. Is is that the best way to execute that? Like from your point of view, what do you like, what do you respond best to in one of those warm? I think it can be, it so ultimately your likelihood of, um, your likelihood of, uh, of getting a positive response. And so let's say your likelihood of getting a positive response for somebody who's actually going to be interested in what you're doing, right? So you don't get points if uh, I'm like, okay, because it's my sister, uh, I'm going to meet you even though like I, I don't even know what you're building, right? There are some people who are close enough connections for me that I'll take any meeting, but that might not be worth your time. Right, uh, or it might be, but you'd want to get different things out of that. So I love having some good context about what you're doing. A blurb, I think, is generally okay. Um, and if it's uh, a blurb in a crowded space, uh, then I might then I might say, "Hey, I'd love some more information," just because I've looked at the space and haven't been that um, excited in the past. Uh, but I trust you you know, warm intro person uh, and your judgment. So let me just kind of take a, a, a next look deeper. Um, so if there's a deck or something like that, uh, that'll be shared. But a lot of times it's just like, oh, this is an interesting enough person, uh, company, and if you're not raising, then I'll just have to go off the blurb. And it's based off of what you've, what you've kind of defined as your market space and what you're building. Um, and then the recommendation of the person who sent it in. But obviously having a product to touch and feel is, is better than not, but I'll, you can see a lot of that on the website and the marketing that you're doing. Hopefully, if it's cons consumer product, I can just sign up, and if it's a B2B product, uh, it tells me a lot about the product, um, what your website looks like, and how you define it. Okay, yeah, so this is just a summary overview. Cool. Um, Hi, so um, what would you do if you were a founder, uh, non-US non founder, your market is in Latin America and you need US funding? So why do you need US funding? Uh, because our Latin American investors are not that uh, professionalized yet. It's like the 2000 uh, investors in the US we have those right now in Latin America, so. Yeah, I mean, so I'll, uh, I think I'll, I'll push on your assumption, which is like, I, I realize that the funding ecosystem there is much smaller, um, but I think having a real sense of why 
that's not the right investing partners for you is really important because I, I know a bunch of the investors in Latin America. I actually think they're really savvy and they've invested in really great companies and there have been some great outcomes. And obviously, it's not at the scale of this ecosystem, but I think um, there's enough there. So I would, I would kind of push on that. I think like the best, the best uh, way for validation is to kind of work with something, someone locally. But one of the big kind of, um, uh, and I'll plug kind of a, a product we're launching at Social Capital. One of the uh, the big um, theses we have is that um, there are a whole bunch of founders who uh, work in places where the funding ecosystem isn't really developed, or also. Um, who just don't have access to that funding ecosystem because it tends to be the people I know who are investors in Latin America probably went to Stanford with me and like you know are kind of drop-ins themselves and aren't like really people who have lived and worked and, and built their careers in the same way in that ecosystem. Um, and so you know it's not necessarily a negative signal if you don't have a LinkedIn connection with me. Um, and so what we built is something called Capital as a Service, which is the ability for you to be very data-driven and upload your data directly to us. And we've seen you know thousands of companies at this point. And so uh, within a given type of company, B2B SaaS, marketplace, what have you, we can say, well, this is like a top one percentile company, uh, and we really should understand this. And actually, at that point, we make an automated investment decision, so you actually don't even have to get on a plane or spend time up here. Because I'd say, to your point, uh, there are really aspects of the funding environment which are broken um, internationally. So um, check that out, uh, and I can intro you to the team uh, there that's running that. Can you just talk to yeah uh, long-term defensibility a little bit more? I it always seems to come up, and I often get a bit frustrated just looking around and seeing huge companies that I can't answer that question for themselves. Like I don't know if Dropbox is a good example or not, but is first mover advantage a good enough sort of? It's obviously not long-term defensible, but what are some of those good answers to that question? Yeah, I, I think in the case of Dropbox in the early days, it was your files are in there, and so if there's something that kind of keeps you coming back, and there's um, you know a real friction in, in removing your files. I'd say I, so. The academic answer is there is a bunch of really good. Um, uh, commentary on types of moats and types of defensibility that you can read. I'd say first for advantage is a really weak one. Um, but, uh, but it helps uh, because your customer acquisition is lower in the early days. You can build economies of scale. There are some of these things that are actually traction or momentum based that are self-fulfilling prophecies. Um, so there might be some aspect of that. But I, I would try to come back to we're less asking about what keeps a customer on today than asking Asking about well, when you grow 10x, what's going to help you grow that other 10x, uh, and not be disrupted or uh, by another competitor who comes in faster, better, cheaper. Um, and so, hopefully, there's something uh, in that. Um, all you know. In some cases, it's network effects. In some cases, it's a system record. In some cases, it's the data. What's that friction that makes it really hard for somebody to leave? Hey, Adam. Um, I'm sure the timelines will vary from deal to deal, but would you mind sharing um, your general ideas and like the steps and the timeline from that first interaction to when the ink is signed on the paperwork? Oh, yeah. Uh, that, that varies, but it's a great question. Um, I'd say the ink is signed on the paperwork. The paperwork being the contract, like the investment contract, actually can be like a month sometimes two months after uh, after the term sheet is signed. So I'd say, um, and that's frankly when the lawyers take over a lot of the work uh, for both sides, uh, although admittedly the company has to deal with more of that than, than we do. So I, I'd say um, getting to term sheet then is kind of how I would think about the process. Um, and getting to term sheet, I mean, you, you could go out and say you're going to fundraise uh, week one and get a term sheet week two, you could go and be, uh, you know, nine months into a fundraise and, and still not have anything done. I would say, um, you know, if I, I were going out and raising uh, a round, what I would do is kind of have a, a relatively tight timeline, a re relatively tight investor set that I was reaching out to. Um, 
now there would probably be some folks who got previews and those folks would probably be some mix of the people who I've gotten to know really well and also some people who I don't think are going to be as valuable, uh, but I want to test my message on. Um, and then basically try to keep everybody on the same timeline and set the expectation that even kind of preempting with a crazy term sheet, something like that, I really want to go and take the process and take the time to be thoughtful about who I'm going to work with. Um, and so I think like adding the kind of, you know, exploding term sheet, uh, I, a lot of people will say that there's no such thing as an exploding term sheet, which is, you know, if, you, if uh, a firm wants to work with you enough, uh, they'll give you the time and space as long as you're acting responsibly on your end, which is, you know, if you go and tell everybody about the term sheet and show it to everybody, then they might pull it. But it, by and large, it's um, as long as you're being transparent and thoughtful, uh, people will kind of give you the space to to make the decision as long as it's not like a ridiculous amount of time. So I would say as long as everybody's on the same process, try to keep everybody in the same timeline generally. Hi, quick question. Uh, you mentioned um, your friend's company that decided to go the non-VC route yeah. um, and did well. Can you mention what that company is? And if you cho and if you choose to not go the VC route, what ways have you seen other companies raise? Is it equity crowdfunding or um, angel so, investors? Or yeah, in, in that case, it was friends and family, and, and it was margin. Margin is a great way to invest in your business because you own 100% of it. Um, you know, uh, there are a number of other options also that are kind of more equity growth infusion type uh, that are different than venture capital. Um, but I would say like your classic bootstrap startup is basically going to make the trade off and say, we're going to grow at uh, a rate of X instead of trying to grow at a rate of 2X, but we're going to own a lot more of the business in the process. Um, so that that's kind of the, the model. Um, and actually, one uh, actually, this is, wow. I think we'll end on this. The last really good question from the live stream. Uh, this is David. Uh, what are some do's and don'ts on the seed round to improve the situation in A round? Um, do's. Uh, you know, I, I would not go to a lot of A investors, especially for an early, early seed round. I wouldn't go to a ton of A investors because I think they're just going to say, like, not interesting and then have, like, a little bit of a, even if it is, especially if it's spray and pray. So I would, you know, be thoughtful about who you're going to. Going to. Um, uh, but if you are doing a later seed round, like you you already have 50, 60, 70K of re revenue, something like that, um, maybe it's worth having a couple of conversations with Series A investors. Because for instance, I just um, did, a, did a deal that was a seed, but we treated it like a Series A. And it was earlier on, but we had a really high level of conviction and a prepared mind on the market. Um, so um, so yeah, that that um, is... is uh, kind of a your own judgment call um, you know who you pick to be your seed investors uh, is probably the biggest the biggest piece um, I'd, I'd you know both from a series a signaling perspective but mostly because I think it's kind of the right way to to uh, be most helpful to you from a company as a company is to have a more concentrated cap table than like you know 800 investors who each put in you know 20k um, to have a couple of folks who really know the business and are helping you and are deeply intimately involved. And then it's a real plus if those folks are really well kind of integrated into the ecosystem here. Um, and, uh, and I think another do is just to have done a lot of this work up front um, so that your A process is actually a really kind of easy outgrowth of the seed process and you've pre-wired and thought about a lot of this stuff. Because again, if seed is the new A, then really you should be kind of addressing the same questions in, in your seed fundraise. Okay. Adam, thank you so much. Thank you guys. Thank you.